Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special returning guest, Joey Krug, co-founder of Augur. So Joey, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, For those who missed our previous episodes where we go pretty deep on it, why don't you describe what a prediction market is and why it's so, you know, potentially game-changing? Yeah, so a prediction market is really just a generic, you know, sort of betting or financial market that allows people to speculate on the outcomes of real-world events. And so it's most easy to understand it if you have a concrete example. So an example might be if you're betting on a horse race, which horse is going to win the race? Or it can be something that's like more useful for society, like which company is most likely to create uh, the first FDA-approved coronavirus vaccine? And then maybe you could allocate funding according to the one that the market thinks has the highest chance of success. Those are kind of like two completely opposite ends of the spectrum, but there's a wide range of things you can use these markets for. And what is the uh, innovation behind Augur? Yeah, so Augur itself is the first decentralized prediction market platform. So it allows people to create these markets in a few points and clicks where there's no one entity that custodies the funds. There's no one who processes the trades um, and everything is peer-to-peer. So you're not going through a centralized company. You're actually doing this all on the Ethereum blockchain. And why um, prediction markets have been around for, for quite some time. What, what's the why now? What's, what's the real innovation here that, that can make popularize them when it wasn't before? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's really Ethereum and it's in its global nature. Um, you know, it sort of allows there to be these global liquidity pools, which I think is really interesting. And then I think it's also an economic thing. If you're running all this infrastructure like a traditional company would, and having all these employees and everything, it it costs a lot of money to operate, which is why sites like Betfair charge the really top traders 40-50% in fees. It's not because like Betfair is greedy. Of course they want to make money like any other business, but you know, they're they have to charge a certain level of fees in order to keep the lights on. And if it's just a peer-to-peer thing um, and everyone's computer is sort of contributing a little bit, uh, it, it sort of shifts the economic model. And you can all of a sudden have these markets where previously prediction markets have been very expensive to use. And so they've never really sort of become like financial markets where they're widely adopted and very low cost and you know really easy to trade on. Um, I think Ethereum long run will enable that. You know, we still have a long ways to get there, but I think that's the direction it's going to go. It's been uh, around a year or so. Why don't you start by giving us up an update on prediction markets with, uh, with Augur in general, but also with just the broader ecosystem. How has prediction markets uh, evolved? Yes, I think, you know, in terms of prediction markets, it, you know, kind of starting to be done in the first real big one, I'd say it was Intrade. Um, they allowed basically betting on the 2008 and 2012 US presidential elections, that's where they got a lot of their volume. They eventually shut down, I think sometime in 2016. And um, maybe plus or minus two years there. And, uh, and then since then, you know, there hasn't really been a huge player. Uh, there's Predict It, which is kind of a, a New Zealand and, and US company, uh, which lets people bet on politics. And that's, that's pretty big. And then there's not a lot, you know, outside of outside of Predict It. You know, the only other real things that exist at the moment are some of these decentralized prediction markets um, on top of Ethereum. And uh, why don't you give us an update on the state of Augur and, and, and where it's going? Yeah. So for Augur, we just launched um, version two, like two days ago. And 
So it fixes a lot of the main issues that people had in version one. Um, it lets you basically trade in this currency called DAI, which is a coin pegged to the US dollar. Um, so you're effectively able to sort of bet in dollars. So you're not having volatility risk of using cryptocurrencies. It also does a lot of things to make it easier uh, for traders and market makers, um, by basically lowering the cost to place orders. Um, in the first version, to actually place an order to like say, I might want to bet on something, it actually costs you money. Um, that doesn't cost any money anymore. It only costs money when you actually um, make a bet. Uh, the last thing we did is we basically revamped the entire UI from a design standpoint. Um, so it looks like if you're, if you're familiar with trading UIs, it's very easy to follow. Um, you know, people who are more familiar with betting UIs, um, they'll probably have to wait until we launch a betting skin. If, if I had to guess on what are the biggest bottlenecks, you know, holding this back from your real, you know, mainstream adoption of prediction markets, I'd guess, you know, regulatory, then technical, then sort of UX, then sort of, you know, cultural, uh, you know, behavior changes. Would you edit that, that order before, before going into each one of them? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the biggest one is, is it all boils down to liquidity, liquidity. And there's a lot of reasons why liquidity may be low or liquidity may be high. You know, like, like for instance, onography two that just came out, you know, the first couple of days, there are a bunch of issues where like, you know, due, due to a bunch of things that have changed on Ethereum, because it's built on this decentralized blockchain platform called Ethereum, uh, transaction costs got really high. And yeah. so like for the first 48 hours, we're actually shipping a release today that you know, by the time this airs, it'll already be live. But for the first 48 hours, it costs you like 100 to $150 just to even start before you even placed your first bet. It's like, that's a huge hurdle to liquidity, right? And so that's how I think about it. It's like, what are the different hurdles to liquidity? And you're right. There's like four or five different things that could potentially be one of those hurdles. Yeah. And so why don't you talk about uh, the state of, of, of Ethereum more, uh, more broadly, but also as it relates to solving some of these scalability uh, challenges? Yeah. So, so more broadly, you know, Ethereum, it came out in 2015, uh, actually five years ago today, talking on July 30th. And, you know, it's, it's been really interesting. It lets, lets you basically create these kind of generic sort of smart contracts or these generic financial agreements on sort of whatever you want. The downside, though, has always been, as you mentioned, scalability. Uh, it's not very scalable. You can do, you know, 10 to 15 transactions a second. And in the transactions you do do right now, because the network is so congested, it's like a traffic jam. But there's like one toll road and the toll road's really, really narrow and only one car can fit through it at a time. It's a, the toll is really expensive is, is sort of like the analogy I would use, you know, to get an Ethereum transaction in and do it quickly, you know, you're ca- talking tens of dollars right now, which is prohibitive for, for a lot of users. There's, I would say, a half dozen different ways that you could seriously solve this problem. And all those ways are, or like say maybe five or so of those are like in t- what I call test nets. You know, they're test networks. They're not with real money yet. They're not live. But I think we'll see a lot of those go live over the next six months to a year and sort of finally solve this scalability problem for real. If you were Vitalik for a day or a year or, or the next five years, what, what, what would you do to help solve some of the Ethereum's challenges? Or what would you do differently or, or more of that Ethereum should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything I'd, I'd particularly do different. I guess the one thing I might do differently is I might try to get the sort of core devs to really engage more with, um, with developers who are building decentralized apps on top of Ethereum to make sure that the scalability solutions they're, they're designing are sort of in line with what uh, users want, particularly from like the developer standpoint, and then also how that flows through to the end user. That's something I think there's not there's not a ton of. But like other than that, you know, I think 
you know, Metallic has an immense job and he's, and he's doing quite well at it. I think it's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of problems to solve and, and, you know, you can only solve one or two things at a time. Totally. Let, let, let's go back to prediction markets before, before zooming out again, talk about some of the regulatory hurdles um, and where are we in potentially, you know, sol- solving for them? Yeah. So I think, you know, if you look at prediction markets historically, they're, they're, you know, if, if you operate once, if you basically take the bets, you customer, custody customer funds, that sort of thing. Um, it's regulated kind of slightly differently in, in different countries. Um, you know, some countries it's regulated as betting and some countries it's regulated more as a financial product. And, you know, the idea behind Augur is to create something that's it's sort of more like Bitcoin or Ethereum, where there is no person who, who custodies the funds. There is no person who processes the trades. So you don't have to trust one person to, to do all those activities. Um, it just happens, you know, purely algorithmically using the Ethereum network. And so if you look at that, you can start to open up liquidity barriers. And so the way I think about it is if you imagine Bitcoin, Bitcoin allows you to send money from one person to another. And then when that person withdraws back to cash or, or when they deposit cash into Bitcoin, then at that point, they get KYC, they get AML checked, they get you know verified to make sure everything is, is you know perfectly fine. That's sort of how I think like long-term is what makes the most sense for these decentralized apps, you know, including prediction markets. You know how you look at look at them from a regulatory standpoint. It's you regulate the fiat on ramps and, and off ramps. What is um, is there a country where it's everyone is doing their prediction markets out of net? Like, what's the best you know jurisdiction for this? I think the most popular jurisdiction for prediction markets is is the United Kingdom. You know, prediction markets is kind of an academic term. I I don't know who really came up with it, but but basically, you know, it's it's a generic term for any sort of financial market that allows you to basically bet on some real world event whether that's a sporting event or just straight up betting or whether that's, you know, whether like something's going to happen to a certain company or like whether like SpaceX is going to launch the next rocket successfully or, or they'll, they'll abort the mission instead, things like that, really anything. And so the UK is, has kind of really like, that's the country with the biggest betting culture. There's sites like Betfair, Bet365. Betfair is actually an exchange. So it's, it's like actually a prediction market. Um, you're trading with other real people around the world. There's some problems with Betfair though. Like they charge you, if you're a really popular market maker there, they charge you 40, 50, sometimes in some cases, 60% uh, of your profits as fees just go straight to them. And so that's sort of like another part of the idea behind Augur is it should operate at its sort of bare economic minimum cost. So today it's not cheap because Ethereum is expensive, but long-term, you know, Augur should be the, the cheapest place to, to do any sort of betting or trading. Is prediction markets just a fancy word for gambling? Like, are you know, we, people have been betting on sports for for quite some time. Is, is that a prediction market? Or are you taking what what you know they, they do on sports and just applying that everywhere else? Yes, I mean it gets into semantics a bit. I think I always think of betting and gambling as two distinct things. So um, I think of gambling that's like you know rolling a dice roll or or going to the the convenience store and buying a lottery ticket. And then betting, I think you know I always associate that with having some sort of skill attached to it. Um, and so, so I think like it is betting for sure. You know, it's like, are you betting on a horse race, whether you're betting on, on something financial, you know, no matter what it is, you're taking a bet. And I think that's like one reason why people like prediction markets a lot is it, it kind of forces you to think in bets. You can really take this very far. Like everything in life is a bet. Like, like, like if you're driving to the city and spending an hour in traffic, like you're basically taking a bet that the expected value of whatever value you're getting out of the city is higher than like the risk that you get in a car accident. Um, there's like every decision in life is a bet. And um, that's kind of how I think about it. 
and I feel like sports betting has been around for, for some time. Has it sort of been carved out at a special carve out legally where, where that was allowed, but maybe other types of, of betting sites weren't or what, what are the thoughts there? Yeah. So sports betting, sports betting, so all betting has been around a long time, both sports and in politics. And then there's other like things that are outside of those two that people like to bet on sometimes as well, that are kind of more one-off things. It really just depends on the country. You know, there's like 180 something different countries and every country views this slightly differently. And like, you can dive in and read about it. And it's like, it's really quite different across all countries. The one couple of things that are true are that, you know, most countries have some sort of sports betting that, that exists there. And then some countries have political betting. And then some countries just have no, no like legislation about it at all. There's not much surrounding prediction markets in, in China, you know, for instance. And so what else are people betting on? Like in, in the last year, if you look at sort of the, if you had to make a pie chart of what you think people are you know, betting on or making predictions on, you know, you mentioned politics, but what else is in there? How would you pie chart it? Yeah, I think, I think you have like, you know, politics, sports, you know, like prices of cryptocurrencies because people are using this on Ethereum. And, and then you have kind of a, a long tail of really just random things, you know, like, like current events. Um, I'm drawing a blank on a good example at the moment, but like whatever a popular current event is at a given time, you know, there's probably some market on that that people are, are betting on. Cases of COVID um, or something, COVID deaths. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Or like vaccine case, like vaccine approvals, you know, whatever, it is, whatever the current kind of top news of, of the month is, there's probably a market on that somewhere. Yeah. And sort of the, the dream here is that you'd sort of benefit from the wisdom of crowds in that when I look at, you know, who's likely to win tonight, the Lakers or the Clippers, I look at the odds basically based on a ton of people making bets and that that should give me some signal as to uh, what is likely to happen. It, 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 sort of like polling, right? Is, is that effectively mm-hmm. um, how, how you see sort of the, um, you know, the, the wisdom of crowds being manifested here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, long-term it's like you, you could envision the, the line we always use like early on when talking about Augur was like, you have a weather app on your phone. Why don't you have an app that tells you the future about anything else? Because um, weather's probabilistic too. Um, and so that's that's kind of like the long-term idea. Totally. And it's, it's uh, I, one example I'm curious about is um, like betting on someone's Twitter followers. Like I think this person's Twitter followers is going to, you know, going to significantly increase or someone's, you know, Instagram followers or, or YouTube followers. It's sort of a, a tangible, a quantifiable way to bet on a person. But I wonder if there could be, instead of just, you know, this person will get to 10,000 followers, yes, no, if it could be weighted for get it how early I am to that bet. Similarly, like if I make an early bet on a cryptocurrency, I get mm-hmm. a corresponding sort of reward for that. Could something similar exist for, for, for predictions? Like I'm, I'm early. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so these exist. Uh, we, Augur calls them scalar markets. Um, but basically it's the idea you have a range of values. And so in the Twitter market one, you know, say the person, when the market starts, they have 5,000 followers. Maybe you make a market with a range from 4,000, just they lose some, all the way to like 10,000. You know, if, if they go above 10,000, the payout's constrained. You still only get the payout as if they had 10,000 because you can't have, um, basically every everything in these prediction markets is fully collateralized. You know, there's no yeah. like margin or whatever. But yeah, you can have a market like that. Yeah. Have you um, looked into idea markets at all? I've like been to the site and read a bit about it, about it once, but I actually don't remember like anything about it. I'm kind of drawing a blank. Yeah. So the Holy grail here is to basically go to like, uh, like a stock market for ideas and go to a website. That's like capitalism's up 20% today, you know, communism's down, 
this meme is really popular. This idea is less popular. People are buying or selling. You know, Kanye just had a breakdown. He's down 40%. And so in some of you can envision like, oh, I, I discovered this person or I discovered this artist or I discovered this, this concept or this meme. I want to mm-hmm. bet that it's going to become pretty big and maybe try to you know, make it really big. I'm going to go early. And just like I'm getting into new cryptocurrency, I'm going to have disproportionate reward in advance for that. And it itself will be a timestamped sort of, you know, identifier of discovery of, hey, I, I was the first person to discover this artist on this website, mm-hmm. first person to discover this meme. Uh, you know, I'm one of the first people to, you know, highlight the Knicks. Uh, I'm a fan of the Knicks. That, that's like almost like I feel like Crypto Kitties ha- had a little bit of this in terms of status around, you know, around kitties. But this would be for, for everything else. What do you, what do you think about this idea? I've, I've had it for a, for a while. I'm curious if, if it could work. Yeah, I think that would work. I think I think like anything else with prediction markets, it, it kind of boils down to liquidity. There's actually somebody who tried this idea on on Augury One. I think it was just too early, but there was like some, there was some activity on it. What they did is they made it for not for like newer people, but for more like already famous celebrities. So you'd have like there's like an Ariana Grande index, and there was like a maybe a Taylor Swift one, and I, I forget who else. And you could buy it, and it was buying a basket of things like. You know, betting that Taylor's first new album sells would be a certain level or betting that she'd sell a number sell out a certain number of concert seats at her next tour and stuff like that. So I think I think long term, yeah. And once there's like enough liquidity, you can do stuff like that okay. for sure. Well let's use that same example because this is slightly different where let's say Taylor Swift, but it's not that she will sell X amount. It's really just that more people will want to own these like collectibles basically. And so Taylor Swift, you know, it's like Maybe you auction off. I don't know how, but you get a timestamp sort of like you were the third person. You were the 13th person. You were the 30th. Like imagine if you were the 30th person mm-hmm. by Bitcoin, one, you'd be very rich. But two, for some people, you you might want, you know, that might be a certain status symbol that, right. that is meaningful. And so the only way the price goes up is if more people buy it <laughs> or, or just right. demand or buy versus sell. Like, what, what do you think about that? Like not tied to actually a prediction, just tied to like whimsical speculation, basically. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I, I haven't really thought much much about that. I don't even know how the market dynamics play out with that, but it's that's actually really interesting. Yeah, and h- how much liquidity do you need for uh, a, a mark uh, for something like this to to be meaningful? Yeah, there's there's like two aspects to that. There's like how much do you need for it to be real predictions that that have value in the world? And the answer um, that's actually pretty low. Uh, there's a good a lot of academic literature on this, and markets converge pretty accurately, even with relatively low levels of liquidity. You know, a couple of days ago, when I was looking at Augur V2, which like was pretty hard to use back then, there were some markets where like, there was, you know, four or $5,000 on, on each side for the best bid and ask. And the spread was a 10th of a penny. And so even with small amounts of liquidity kind of in, in the center of the order book, you can actually get pretty accurate pricing. And then what researchers have done is they compared this, they've taken markets that have had small liquidity in the past, and compared them to what actually happened, right? And so like a market that says something has a 40% chance of happening, on average, if you have 100 markets like that, on average, the event should happen 40% of the time. And so it turns out with like, you know, five to $10,000 of liquidity or so, you can get, it's a market's pretty accurate. Of course, it gets more accurate as you add more, but like the difference between zero and 5,000 is a zero to one difference. 5,000 to 50,000 is like an incremental addition. Yeah, totally. And um how have you interfaced with the academic literature on prediction markets or how has the academic literature and prediction markets continued to evolve as we've made these, you know, innovations in the last, last few years? 
So basically, when I first got involved, I, I read like every paper that I could find. There's not that many. There's like pr- probably at most, you know, 50 or 60. And the, the really, like the literature talks about two things, basically. It talks about the concept of how these markets, you know, provide real predictions that are actually valuable and they're more accurate than almost any other source of, of getting predictions for about the future. Um, and then the second thing they talk about is mechanisms for having like liquidity mechanisms in these markets. Like what if you had a way to provide liquidity instead of using um, an order book? And uh, so that was actually the first sort of automated market literature. Like I'm sure a lot of listeners here have heard of Uniswap um, on Ethereum. It's a decentralized exchange that uses this automated market maker. So you're not trading against individual users directly. You're trading against this pool of liquidity. That literature and that, that concept originated in, in the prediction market literature. Have you talked much to Robin Hansen? And if so, where do you have uh, any differences of opinion? Yeah, so he, he's, a, he's always been an advisor to Augur probably since maybe a month or two in. I haven't talked to him too recently, but uh, I think a lot of what he says about prediction markets is, is accurate. I think, you know, one thing that, that he might differ a bit on is, you know, he's super into the academic use cases of like, you know, hey, we're going to get this real world information and make a prediction. And then, and then like, we can use that for something useful. Um, I am too, but I think, I think to get there, you need to get liquidity around um, stuff that, that people find interesting outside of that. So like, maybe it's not the most interesting thing in the world to bet on the outcome of an English soccer match, you know, and it's probably not the most academically valuable thing either. But my view is if you can get liquidity around this other stuff, it, it will kind of trickle through or trickle down to other markets where like, if you have a bunch of people who are, who are betting on stuff that they enjoy, and then they see a market on like, will this company's vaccine get approved or not, then there's a decent chance that they might bet on that as well. But if you just launch a site where it's just like, will they bet on this, will this vaccine exist or, you know, will SpaceX get launch or whatever, you know, I don't think you're going to get a lot of liquidity. And that's like one area where, you know, Hanson and I might, might differ on that. I don't know. And that's like three years out of date. So maybe he's has a different view now. So uh, trickle down, you're, you're the Ronald Reagan of prediction markets. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see if that, if that works or not, but that's my, my bet. Yeah, his hope is that uh, instead of like, for example, a company, you know, a company board determining whether a CEO should be fired, you like, you know, pull the employees and they bet on sort of what the revenue would look like with a different CEO or not, or yeah, will this product launch or, or this movie, how will it do? And he has this broader dream of what he calls futarchy, right? Which is sort of governance run, run by predictions. Mm-hmm. Have you run by betting? Have you, have you seen anything even remotely close to, you know, exper- any organization trying that or any, any experiments? Yeah, I have, I'm aware of some organizations that have tried it in the past. Like I've, I've heard stories, you know, of people like, oh, Google, we have prediction markets internally for a period of time or whatever. I'm not sure what really ended up happening to those. You know, usually I think the problem with running a prediction market within a company or organization is that Hansen, you know, himself has said that this is a problem. The problem is a political problem. So you run it and the market tells people something they don't want to hear. And then, you know, what do you, what do you do about it? And it's usually management doesn't want to hear what the market's telling them. And so that's like, you know, it's, it's a tough problem to do that kind of stuff with organizations. There have been some prediction markets for like product launches that I think have worked though. Like um, when Ethereum was coming out in 2015, there was a centralized prediction market uh, called like Fairlay that listed markets for like, will Ethereum launch by July, August, September, October of 2015. And, um, I actually made some money on that one, betting that it would launch in July because no one thought that it would. 
And uh, so, so yeah, it, it does, it does work, but sometimes, you know, you have to go outside the organization to get people to, to do it. Yeah. It's interesting. This idea, you know, people talk about skin in the game. It seems a lot is writing about skin in the game. And right now, you know, people making all sorts of predictions, um, all sorts of ideas. Sometimes it's hard to know if they really, really believe them and prediction markets, you know, can easily enable, Hey, are you willing to bet on this? Um, mm-hmm. as a way of, you know, so prediction markets is sort of like skin in the game as a service or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I found too, is, you know, when you ask people to bet on something, it, you often find out that they don't actually disagree with you. They, they are thinking something slightly different, but when you specify the terms of the bet, they actually agree. That happens like 80% of the time in my experience. Cause I, I challenge people to, you know, like, like if somebody says something, I just blatantly disagree with it. I'll be like, I don't think that's right. Like, like how much would you bet that's the case? And <laughs> usually you define the terms and then they're like, actually, you know, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And so, and so why is it because they're misspeaking or because they're just, they want something else to be true or they're trying to get across a different point or why does that happen? I think what happens is, you know, people view things differently. So like, for instance, a good example of this would be like, if you're thinking about something quantitative, right? Someone might be like, oh, I think a lot of X thing is going to happen. And somebody else is like, no, no way. Like, yeah. There's not a lot of that. That's not going to happen. Say it's like rainfall. I think like somebody's like, oh, I think a ton of rain is going to occur. And then like the other person's like, no way, no way. And then the first person says, okay, well, I think, you know, it's going to be at least a hundred inches of rain. Um, and another person says, oh, well, you know, I actually agree with that. You know, I, I was thinking a lot and a thousand inches. It's stuff like that where once you quantify it, there's always disagreements still sometimes, but like not to the degree that, you might think before you quantify something. Yeah. You know, bettings because it's been outlawed for so long sort of has a somewhat of a stigma attached to it, or at least people don't think about, you know, betting in the context of like social good, like here's how we make better decisions, get better data. And there's some educating ed- education that needs to, needs to happen around that. Yeah. So I think if you think about betting, you know, from like a social good standpoint, I think betting has, has brought a ton of good in, into the world. And so, um, it helps to start with some history. So if you think about, you know, the history of markets in, in general, they've always been viewed as, viewed as betting and pure speculation and, and not useful when they first come out. And so this happened when the first stock exchanges came out. Um, within a decade, people were like, this is just useless speculation. There's no value in this. There's no value in trading on these companies. It's just all like fake. It doesn't matter. And then eventually trading on stocks became to be accepted. Almost most, most people in the US or a lot of people in the US have a 401k. They're taking bets on stocks. They may not be thinking about it actively, but they are. And then after stocks came out, then you had like bonds. Um, I'm probably messing up the ordering. Maybe bonds came first, but either well, either way, you know, those were viewed as being betting and, and crazy. And then you have derivatives. So you have like futures, options, swaps, that sort of stuff. When derivatives first came out, they were viewed as being, you know, really wacky and like that's just pure betting. There's actually, if anybody's interested in learning more about this, Christian Carlo, who who used to run the US CFTC. So the Pope basically said, uh, the Catholic Church Pope, he basically said, you know, I don't think derivatives are good. I think, I think they're bad. You know, they like don't add value into the world. And so Christian Carlo, he's a, he's a Catholic, I think. And he wrote like a really long essay being like, this is why derivatives are good. They actually add a lot of value to the world, you know? And he ended up, I think, I think he ended up like meeting with the Pope and discussing it, you know, whatever. But the, but the point is derivatives do add a lot of value. A concrete example of this is things like insurance crop insurance, homeowner's insurance, car insurance, health insurance, all these things are basically bets. Um, people don't think about them because once some new thing is added to society and then society accepts it, 
within, you know, a hundred years, it's no longer viewed as a bet. But when it's first added, it's always viewed as this crazy thing to bet on. And so the, the long story short, I think betting is going to be the same thing. Betting is just more, the sort of betting that people do today is more recent. You know, I think, I think over time, it'll get more financialized and people will, will view it with the same respect they view other assets. Yeah. Derivatives have a stigma att- attached to them because of 2008, right? Yeah. Well, they had a stigma when they were first right. introduced to well, well before 08. Yeah. So it's like, there's always some, like whatever the cutting edge of is of, of markets technology, it's viewed as betting until like it's no longer the cutting edge. Totally. And to the extent that anything has, has trade-offs or potential side effects, what are some potential side effects of, of prediction markets? So obviously the, the positive ones are we get, you know, better data, you know, from, uh, you know, for everything basically, and thus can make better financial decisions, better life decisions and have better sort of clarity over what's actually, what's actually happening and better sense-making. Uh, the, the negative ones, you know, people point to assassination markets uh, at times. What are uh, other negative side effects and how do we potentially uh, address them? Well, yeah, I think the biggest negative side effect of, of any market that's, that's sort of like a synthetic market is, is that it's, you know, some people are going to lose money when they're, when they're betting, right? It's like, um, it's like if you're trading a derivative um, in, in the equities world, in many cases, it's, it's zero sum. So somebody wins, somebody loses. And so the same thing is, is true in betting. So that's probably like the biggest side effect is some people are not going to be good bettors and they're going to lose money. But that's, that's sort of true with a lot of things in life. It's not just true with betting. Outside of that, the only other real critique of prediction markets is this idea that like prediction markets can influence real world events. Because if you bet a lot on some event, you can, or you bet a lot against an event, you can encourage that event to happen. I think in practice, that's not really a real problem. These incentives exist in financial markets as well. You can like, you know, you could like sabotage a company. Like you could light Tesla's factory on fire and buy a ton of put options that expire 24 hours from now that are out of the money. And um, that sort of activity doesn't really, doesn't really happen. I'm sure some crazy corporate sabotage stuff has happened in the past and people have made money off it, but it's not like, it's not the common thing. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very rare. And, and the amount of money you need for that to actually happen is really, really large sums of money. So let, let's say you're back here you know, next year uh, around the same time. Uh, what is your hope for where, where prediction markets is? And what do you think is sort of the next meaningful milestone? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, so the way I describe it is when we released Augury 1, it was really tough to use. Um, you, you had to do your bets in this cryptocurrency that was super volatile. Um, there were the laundry list. It would take too long to list out all the issues. With Augury 2, you know, I think, um, especially with this update we're going to push today, after that, really the only big issue is that Ethereum is still kind of, kind of slow. You know, it may take a 30 seconds to a minute for your transaction to go through. And it's pretty expensive. You know, it costs like 10 to $20 to do a trade. It's kind of like the old online brokerage days, you know, when your broker, you call them, call them up on the phone, and they charge you 20 bucks, uh, except Ethereum is charging you that to do a trade on Augur right now. And so we come back, if I come back in a year, you know, the thing I'd like to be different is I'd like to be able to tell you, Augur V3 launched, it's really fast. Uh, like your trades happen in one or two seconds. And it only costs you two or three cents, or maybe one or two cents to do a trade. And at that point, it should be like so easy to use that, you have all the benefits of these decentralized prediction markets. It's, it's so good that it feels centralized. And a, a couple of people have thought that with Augur V2. Like somebody tweeted out being like, this thing is centralized. It sucks. I thought Augur was a decentralized project. And uh, I talked to him and the reason why they thought it was centralized, it just, it just loaded so fast. They were confused and thought we had just like centralized everything. 
But in reality, it's it's completely peer-to-peer and it's entirely in your browser. It's it's super decentralized. But I think you still can't get around the cost and speed issues right now. And that's what I want to have fixed a year from now. Yeah. Has there been any behavior uh, in terms of actual bets or predictions that have surprised you uh, or that you uh, you might expect to see that we, that we haven't yet seen yet in terms of the actual bets themselves? I don't think so. I think I think the I mean maybe one thing that surprised me is how how tight the spreads are on on V two. You know, I, I wasn't expecting to see like a couple tenths of a penny or one tenth of a penny in some cases be the spreads between these markets. So that's surprising to me, um, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't really know anything beyond that. You know, I thought the I thought the Ethereum cost would sort of make people not be that precise with their spreads, but they're still doing it anyway, which is interesting. Let's zoom out uh, to talk about the state of crypto more broadly. So describe a little bit the the past year uh, in in the you know, broad ecosystem, and perhaps put it in context of of what we've seen since since sort of the great you know bull run of of twenty seventeen. So I would say you know really quick after twenty seventeen, the space sort of entered a, a pretty dark winter. Uh, twenty eighteen, you know, prices went down a ton, like eighty percent or so across the board. Um, twenty nineteen was kind of you know gradual sort of recovery from that. But still kind of things went down a good amount, I think, in the fall 2019 for a lot of assets outside of Bitcoin. And what happened during those two years is a lot of people were just continuing to build what they were working on. Uh, People didn't stop building things because the price went down. In fact, it's more easy to focus when the prices are low because nobody's talking about it. And so you can just kind of continue iterating on something and, and keep working on it. And so, you know, in the past year, we've seen a bunch of different things go live. In the past two years, we've seen Compound go live. MakerDAO went live. These are both lending protocols. One of them has a stable coin associated with it. Um, Uniswap's volumes have grown by a huge amount. Um, so people are finally starting to use these decentralized finance apps. They tend to center around things that are, you can kind of do one transaction and get a lot done in that one transaction. So they tend to be like lending, borrowing, um, using these automated liquidity pools, not an order book because um, order books require speed um, with these big automated market makers don't. And um, more recently, you know, over the past six months, we've seen, I think, an acceleration in this decentralized finance space where people are starting to launch new tokens again. Um, They tend to have like some sort of governance functionality and, you know, eventually some claim on cash flows in the network. And um, I guess the only other thing is, is, you know, there's this term yield farming that people are talking about where they're basically locking up cryptocurrency, it's usually stable coins or currencies pegged to the dollar, and then earning some additional token or earning interest somehow, whether it's like via trading fees, lending to someone, or the interest is just someone's distributing a new token, and they're giving it to you um, in exchange for the capital that you're locking up. So same question on next year, a year from now, what do you expect to have changed or evolved or uh, in, in the in the crypto ecosystem more broadly, like what do you, what are the biggest things you expect to happen? Yeah, so I think in the next year, what what I expect to see is if you look at um, what's working now, it tends to be these things that require one off transactions, not very much scale or, or low latency. I think in a year from now, we'll see people launch these things that are um, that do enable low latency, that do enable low cost. I think we'll see what that what works can change. So you have stuff like zero x where they're like a top five um, decentralized exchange, but they're not, you know, number one or number two. Um, I think I could easily see them flipping that and becoming the top one, number one or number two, once these scalability constraints are fixed. 
you'll see stuff like Augur finally become really useful because the latency and speed issues are no longer a problem. And then there's probably, you know, five or six other use cases that none of us have thought of that people will just start to build once they realize this is possible. And, you know, I'm excited to see those too, because I don't know what they are, but I know it's going to be interesting. Uh, Multicoin wrote a blog post a couple of years ago about the emerging sort of smart contract platform wars and that they would sort of rival the, the smartphone wars, uh, you know, sort of almost a couple de- decades ago. What, what has happened there? Is Ethereum just sort of clearly dominated? As, is it actually a war? Or what's happened there? Yeah, so I think in terms of this, you know, smart contract platforms, you know, the, the decision you need to make as a developer is where can you build the app that you want to build? You know, it's, it's, it's like any other developer platform. It's, it's that simple. The difference, though, is that unlike iOS and Android, you know, it's not like you can launch an iOS app and then no one else can access it on Android. Um, that's not what it is. It's more like you can launch something using this SDK and then anyone on any platform can still play it. You know, you just need the internet to access Augur, regardless of whether Augur was on Ethereum or Near or Polkadot or whatever. Um, so it's more like, I think it's more like the game game engine wars. You know, it's like Unity versus Unreal Engine or something. Um, they both allow you to launch games cross-platform. And so I think what that means is it'll probably be less, you know, like it's, it's, it's a less important thing than the smartphone wars, in my opinion. Because in the smartphone wars, if you don't win, you're just completely dead. I guess other than that, I think what determines whether people will pick one or another is how easy is it to write apps on it and how fast is it? And does it allow me to access other things in the ecosystem? Does it allow me to use Dive? Does it allow me to use Uniswap? Uh, things like that. And if the answer is no to any one of those things, it's going to be hard for it to get adoption. What is the state of, of, of stable coins? And what have we sort of seen there uh, or, or not seen there? Yeah. So the, the current state of stable coins is you have, basically two big flavors. You have centralized ones like USDC and Tether, um, which are basically dollars in a bank account somewhere. Um, And then you have things like DAI, which are collateral backed. So you put a bunch of Ether in a contract, you over collateralize it, and then you issue this stable currency on top of it. It's basically kind of like a a debt market almost, uh, or collateralized lending. And those are the two big flavors. They have different trade-offs. You know, the, the centralized ones can they can blacklist you. Die can't really do that. So that's that's kind of like the landscape. How do you identify your uh, in, investment thesis? You know, in July, in you know August twenty twenty, um, or or your sort of request for projects or startups in, in the space right now? I do have a thesis on the space, but I think it's if you just Google like a crypto thesis, it, it's the first result. And I think I wrote that like a year ago or a year and a half ago. The only thing that's really changed is like progress in the space. You know, I talk about like scalability and fiat on ramps and stuff. And a lot of that stuff has evolved and, and improved. But the core of the thesis, you know, like what I'm excited about is still the same. And to me, that's decentralized finance. You know, that's, that's sort of when I came across Ethereum in 2014, that's what got me really excited. You know, I, I think of it as sort of like the biggest innovation since the internet. And my thesis on it really at a high level is every time society gets more freedom of speech, um, society advances. Um, in, in my view. And the same thing applies in my mind to freedom of money. You think of money as a form of speech, um, which like you can sort of think of it like that due to the Citizens United court case that everybody hates. But uh, if you think of it like that, then Ethereum is just advancing free speech and so is DeFi. And so we want to invest in any sort of DeFi project or anything that assists that vision 
So all the way from, you know, exchanges that facilitate just trading of cryptocurrency, all the way to actual DeFi projects and applications themselves, layer one blockchains, and then people, you know, doing like developer tools and things like that. So it's a pretty wide thesis, but um, I think this is going to be the, the next big thing uh, after the internet. And so that's what we're excited to fund. Within DeFi, what are things that you, you want to exist that have, that have not yet, you know, come to pass yet? Or as you've seen even people try it at a, you know, meaningful way? Yeah, I think one thing that would be interesting is, um, you know, somebody took something like ZeroX and built a way to do the trade settlement on some sort of plasma sidechain. And so basically, you know, in, in simpler terms, like built a, a fork of ZeroX that was like faster but you could still interact with the main version of zero X on Ethereum. So like it still used the same zero X token. Um, but you just had like this other UI that existed that was like really fast to trade. I think zero X volumes would just, would just skyrocket if that happened. Um, it's technically possible today. It's a huge amount of work, but, uh, yeah, I mean that, that would be something that I think would be very interesting. How do you think crypto will disrupt, uh, venture capital, uh, if at all? Yeah, I don't think it's going to disrupt it a ton. The one thing crypto does is it democratizes access to financial markets. So it does mean that if you want to raise money from a crowd of people, it's much easier to do that. Uh, we've seen that historically, and it's it's still true to some degree today. I think the thing that it doesn't replace, though, is like, you know, there's two reasons why you might go to a venture capitalist. One is because you need money. Um, the other is because you need like some help or advice or, or like just some value that, that the VC provides. Um, so that's why people might choose one VC over another when there's, if you have a popular company, there's going to be 10 VCs who want to invest in you. And so I think crypto will, will sort of replace the first reason. Like no one's going to go to a VC because they need money anymore. It's already starting to happen anyways, because there's so much capital in the markets now that like, if you're doing a company and the company's interesting and it's has you know some legs there um you're going to be able to get multiple offers uh for the most part if you have a strong team and so i think it's going to disrupt the vcs who all they add is money for other people i think there's they'll always still exist yeah jesse walden just start, started a new fund and his, his sort of thesis is the ownership economy and one of the things we were talking about is how one of the most exciting things here is just really to provide equity to so many more people, uh, just creating net networks that allow users to have equity or, or upside, not just employees. But I almost wonder if if, um, if government ever experimented with some form of UBI, if they could do it in the form that would give uh, people upside in, in companies. And I think this is basically how capitalism gets more popular is you just give more people a, a direct share in the upside, as opposed to like, getting it on the back end via taxes and then programs. And you don't even like appreciate that Amazon, you know, paid for that. W what do you think about uh, that, that concept and, you know, uh, and where we are at with that? Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I like that idea. I'm a, I'm a very capitalist person. I think, um, you know, it's sort of like, um, I forget, I think it's like maybe a Winston Churchill quote, you know, where he says that, you know, Americans can do the right thing after they've exhausted all of their options. And capitalism is kind of the same thing. Like, yeah, there's a ton of other systems, but none of them really work. And so, uh, so I think, you know, there's definitely improvements that could be made. There's definitely things that, that could change for sure. But I think if you look at sort of what's the best way to get something done, it's, it's to let a market do it. The simplest, like most concise example of this is when, um, I think when the Challenger shuttle blew up, uh, there's a company that manufactured the O-rings 
but there were like six or seven different companies that are publicly traded that manufacture O-rings and all of them went down in the first hour. And then a few hours after that, all of them went up except for one. And it took Congress six months to make a report and figure out which manufacturer made the faulty O-rings, but the stock market did it in a few hours. Like that, that's the power of, of, you know, free markets. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, hard to deny. And I think, you know, if, if more people were educated of that reality in school, you know, a lot of public schooling kind of tells you that like, oh, things are so terrible. And like, you yeah. know, every company just have to get you. And it's like, it's, it's not true. Yeah. If only Hayek or Milton Friedman were alive to see the sort of price discovery and, you know, markets and everything that we, that we have today. Yeah. Yeah. I think they'd be, um, I think they'd like it. They'd probably be disappointed about the Fed printing a ton of money and stuff, but I'm, I'm sure they'd like the markets. Totally. And also there's an interesting shift that we're sort of starting to see a little bit between from like debt to equity. And I sort of think that debt in many ways is sort of adversarial or sort of, you know, uh, abstracted, whereas equity is, is more collaborative and more aligned. And to the extent that we have, you know, common problems that we all, all face that sometimes aren't even priced in, um, aligning incentives, you know, presents a lot of options. And, you know, whether it's from, you know, going to college or, or, or maybe even going to the doctor or just the, the potential for income share agreements. Is that something that you've uh, looked into much? You know, one, on the crypto side, you know, personal tokens is something that some people have, have experimented with. What, what, what does this make you think? Yeah, I think income sharing agreements are, are really exciting. I remember a few years ago and somebody syndicated land to school on AngelList and I, I put a little bit of money into it. You know, I thought it was a, a really interesting idea. It's a great way to like get people a big leg up in a, in a free market sort of manner that like, yeah, I mean, you just read some of the stories. It's, it's crazy. You have people who are like making like, you know, $20,000 a year, you know, working like at Walmart or something. And then they kind of got this leg out from Lambda school, which is a capitalist business. It's not, it's not a charity, but then they turn around and they're making $140,000 as, as an engineer. I just think that's like, that's amazing. That's awesome. Like that, that's like the way things, you know, should work. And you know, I think you can do that idea for other areas too. Like there's a lot of trades and things that exist that people just aren't aware of. Like there's a lot of trades where people aren't aware that, you know, if you just went to trade school for a year, you can do this thing and literally three X, whatever you're making. I think it's an awesome idea that I'm surprised has taken this long to, to, to like happen. Like um, it's one of those ideas where it's obvious in hindsight, but nobody really bothered too much prior. And I think um, NFTs or other sort of, you know, crypto innovations allow you know, you just have more of those types of, of exchanges where, mm-hmm. you know, you can redeem sort of collectibles or, you know, experiences with artists, hypothetically, or, or just, um, you know, make, you know, speculating on me as a person possible and, and e- easy and right. you know, able to scale. Do you, do you foresee that being a common behavior in the next, I don't know, decade or, or, or so of sort of, you know, people going public effectively, like ICOing themselves? <laughs> I don't think that will happen too much. You know, I think, um, I mean, maybe in like an abstract way, you know, like like they're using Lambda School or some other company to to do it, but not like um, you know just selling it directly, you know, to people on a blockchain. Because I think, I think the problem with that that second category is it has um, it has a lot of risks, like similar to like peer to peer lending. It's equity instead of lend instead of like lending them or whatever. But I mean, I just remember I I lent a bunch of money back out on on BTC Jam back in like 2013 or so, and like lost the most of it. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of scarred from that. And so I'm like, okay, well, if I like give this person money on the internet, you know, there's no guarantee that they'll pay it back. 
like on BTC Jam, I had arbitration awards that said, you know, I, I won the month, but like I, I like they just owed it to me or whatever, but it's not enforceable. And so those are all problems that like need to be solved somehow, I think. So there is a group of people who are really excited about crypto because of basically the the sovereign individual thesis that it will sort of uh, decouple our, our dependency on or help decouple our dependency on on governments. And what is your sort of your stance on or connection to, to that, that group of people and and where are you on you know charter cities more broadly? So I've read a good amount about that. I, I have to confess I haven't actually read the book Sovereign Individual. I know Bilagi talks about it a lot. Um, it's it's on my reading list, but it's it's been there for like three years. I've just never gotten to it yet. I do think charter cities are a very interesting idea. You know, it's it's this idea that lets you experiment and try a lot of things that you you couldn't really otherwise do. I think there should be more of it. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's a really really good idea, and I I think it'd be cool to see more. Totally. Talk a little bit about the state of of crypto funds. So we had you know in 2017, of course, with the bull run, everyone was raising a fund, and all these different types of funds got off the ground. There were hedge funds, there were traditional venture funds, there were you know hybrid structures. How was that sort of all? Um, there was questions as to whether the winners would be native or you know like your Pantera, like yourselves. Polychain, et cetera, or whether they would be sort of existing players like A16Z and USV or others. Where is sort of the dust settled um, in in how crypto funds uh, you know operate and and how the landscape looks? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way it's settled. I'll get the U.S. side answered because there's a lot of uh, funds overseas in Asia as well that that you know are important and big players in the space too. But I think in the U.S., the way it's settled. You basically have like four or five pretty serious players. You have, you know, Pantera, as you mentioned, you have Polychain, you have Paradigm, you have Andreessen, you have Blockchain Capital, and then there's there's probably like one or two other big ones I'm drawing a blank on, and then and then there's a far long tail after that. And I think I think that makes sense. You know, most things in markets follow power laws. If you notice a common theme in there, you know, most of those are are crypto native, with the exception of Andreessen Horowitz. So I think it's it's pretty safe to say the way the dust has settled is it's mostly crypto native. Um, with the exception of Andreessen, who, who got into the space, and of, of mainstream VCs, they've been in been in crypto a very long time relative to other firms. So you could you could probably almost kind of call them crypto native in a sense, even though they're they do other stuff besides crypto. And then if you look at you know other VC firms in, in the valley, they're just kind of main popular VCs. You'll you'll notice that on some deals, you know we may be co investors with a lot of them. Uh, the same thing is true for the other firms I listed. Uh, which means that it's still, to them, it's still you know new enough that they haven't they haven't gotten so competitive about it or knowledgeable about it that they're trying to like you know just lead a deal and not get any feedback about it. Versus for the crypto native firms that I, that I listed, you know we're perfectly fine investing in a deal if, if nobody else thinks it's interesting. Uh, we've done that a couple of times. Some of our best investments have, have been those kind of deals. So I think that's yeah that's one difference. And I feel like. Earlier on, or earlier, um, sort of in the bull run, there was this broader sense. Even before it, there was this broader sentiment that before even DeFi was a thing, that it would it would not just be about finance, but really just sort of Web three, and we would have decentralized social networks and decentralized marketplaces, and that they would rival, you know, decentralized counterparts of Dropbox and Airbnb and you know Facebook and Uber and others. Talk about whether you see that possibly playing out. Or, or, or what is sort of this web, the new web three and, and where do you think will be real and where do you think it, it, it won't happen? I've always been skeptical of the web three thesis. It's, it's never been the thesis that got me excited with, with the exception of, it's like, that's referring to all the social stuff. 
I'm also just not a person. I use Twitter and that's basically it. So I'm not, I'm not the person to talk to about social media anyway, but I think, uh, so I've never been excited about that. My, my thesis on that is the only real reason to use web three for social is, is privacy or to some degree censorship. People who are facing censorship are kind of already forced to migrate to other platforms. And for some reason, people aren't people, other people don't care that much. It's there's outrage for a day. It's like, Oh, Twitter censored zero hedge, but nobody's like, or most people aren't like, but I'm going to leave Twitter because they censored it. And so that's the problem. So that's why Web3 isn't really working there. And then on the other area, the one area I am excited about it is like the marketplace piece. I think that's super tough. But, you know, if somebody told me 10 years from now that there was an app that was like Uber, but that was peer-to-peer where Uber didn't take a 40% cut or whatever their cut is these days. And um, it was cheaper for both riders and drivers, but everybody, but the drivers made more money even. I wouldn't be shocked. I also wouldn't be shocked if it doesn't happen, but I wouldn't be shocked if it does. I would be incredibly shocked if there's a decentralized Twitter that replaces Twitter. And, uh, you know, maybe five years from now, nobody's bothered to do the Uber idea. Maybe I'll try it. Because I think it's worth, it's worth somebody trying that idea. Um, it's, it's theoretically possible. It, it'd be a tough to build the network effect. I think you, you would need to start in like, you know, start in cities, specifically just like how Uber did where you roll it out, you have to like get on the driver boards, get all the drivers involved, but I don't think it's impossible. Yeah. And it's, in, I mean, you saw Jack with his blue sky uh, is, is trying to experiment there uh, into, into sort of de- decentralizing Twitter over time, such that mm-hmm. perhaps he doesn't have to make these tough calls, but yeah, um, maybe I mean, if, if they do it, maybe it will work. But I think the problem is everybody has their followers on Twitter and the people they follow are there. So it's like, I mean, it's the classic network of that problem. It's hard to, totally. it's hard to break it. I think Uber's easier to break in Airbnb. Yeah. You can start in one city. What about Blockstack or people are trying sort of in the browser or, or what do you think about that? I think, I think it's interesting. I think it's like, um, you know, I think it kind of has a lot of the same problems the rest of the Web3 stuff does though, uh, where it's just like the average person doesn't, yeah. doesn't care. Yeah. The only thing that would make them care is perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> uh, either in- increased regulation on on these social media platforms such that they'd have to um, diversify or something or, or open or not or not diversify but uh, sort of give up their data lock-in mm-hmm. um, like you know mandatory API keys or something or just you know increased public sentiment around privacy but that seems uh, seems hard yeah if there's if there's some regulation that forces like an open API thing where you can like kind of like how you think of like Urbit, you can you can port your data over to any app and you can still interact with anybody else on the Urbit network. Like if there's some law for some reason someday that somebody somehow passes this that forces like Twitter and Facebook to do the same thing, where like you can port your data over and still interact with everybody else on Twitter in some open way, then I think it's possible. Um, and I think it would almost certainly happen in that case. Totally. Uh, and, but is Urbit in the same category of blocks that like? you know, same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Urbit is like, well, if they, if they make it way easier to use, I could see it getting some adoption in some circles, but I think it's, um, but not for the social media stuff, just more like, you know, people might build apps on it because it's interesting or something, but I don't think it's like, you're not going to use Urbit to replace your, your Twitter. Yeah. And, and last question is, um, is Bitcoin still way ahead in the, in the money, uh, you know, in the competition to be uh, decentralized, you know, money? And is that sort of a winner take all uh, game or how do you see that playing out? I think it's certainly in the lead to take digital gold. I think it's going to win that for sure. I think, you know, a, a digital alternative money, you know, Bitcoin's not use, being used for payments that much. I think somebody could still unseat it 
in in that category, um, whether it's Dai or you know something else. And Ethereum, in in, in its use case, is it um, you know as as confident? Are you as confident in that winning that as as you are Bitcoin winning digital gold? Or what's your prediction there? I'm like seventy five percent as confident on Ethereum winning winning its category. I think it will, but you know, there's some universe where I'm wrong. And uh, who's second most likely? So, well, we invested in both of them, but I guess it's good to have your money where your mouth is. So I think Polkadot and then Nier um, are probably like, so, so both like Nier needs to decentralize more before it's practical and, and Polkadot needs to make it easy to write Solidity contracts on it, um, which they haven't completely done yet. Um, I think both of those things happen. If both of those things happen, then then their odds increase. So lastly, lastly, what do you think is is a misconception people have about the uh, something specific or, or, or the broad ecosystem, uh, crypto ecosystem right now, or or, or what's something you think that uh, differently than than what other people think? You know, I guess, I guess one thing I would say is I think I think a lot of these DApps that use and some other people think this, but people are not making decisions based on their actions based off of it. So I'd say the thing I think that's different is I think these centralized oracles are a really big problem. They effectively, every DAP is, is only as decentralized as, as its weakest link. And so if you have a centralized Oracle, that's pricing everything. It can effectively, in most cases, steal all the money. So you've built a centralized app that's harder to use um, than any other centralized app because you have some decentralized elements, but you have this really weak link, which, which can easily be bro- broken, which is the Oracle itself. And so um, there's not like a great answer for how to solve that problem. And so instead, what a few people, people have done is they just basically said, well, we'll just solve it someday in the future. But very few people are actually working on progressing solutions to that problem. And so it's like one day people are going to wake up and it's going to be a huge issue. And it's, it's like a systemic risk. You can, you can kind of like, like people prior to 2008, they felt that like all these um, collateralized debt obligations and all these like weird packages were, were a big risk. But it was kind of hard to put your finger on exactly why it was. It's the same thing here, I think. That's a, a great place to wrap. My guest today has been Joey Krug, uh, co-founder of Augur uh, and partner at Pantera. Uh, Joey, for people who want to learn more and uh, you know go, go play with Augur and go deeper, uh, where can you point them? Yeah, so if you want to learn more, you can go to augur.net. There's um, links to the UI there. There's links to the Discord um, where you can join like a community chat. If you have like questions or whatever, yeah, you can you can talk to anybody in there and they'll probably help you. And you can follow Joey at uh, Joey Krug on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, Joey, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.